Welcome to the Future Champions podcast. I'm Stuart Taylor and I was lucky enough to hold a special live Future Champions webinar with former Brisbane Raw player Shane Stefanudo. This webinar has now been converted into a podcast. I hope that you enjoy it as much as I enjoyed speaking to Shane. So here it is, Shane Stefanudo. Shane, welcome to the Future Champions webinar. Hi everyone, hi Stuart. From your perspective, how important was a strong mindset in your sporting journey? It's extremely important. Some people would say that professional sport is maybe 80% mental and 20% physical. Now, I don't 100% agree with that, but overcoming setbacks, dealing with pressure, you need to be able to, I guess, develop this skill. And it is a skill. It's something that I think over time you get better and better at. It's not something that any of us, I guess, just instinctively have in our locker. And I think it's good that as we come up to hurdles or challenges, we get through those challenges, but we learn from what we've done and and we hope and we always hope that it makes us bigger and better and a a better sports person, I would say. Sport is a journey that everyone's at a different stage in their life or development, but there are stages of that journey that can be categorised into the following and they are fun, challenge, elite and excellence. So fun, this is the athlete who plays sport for fun Training and outcomes are not as important as connecting with people. So Shane, similar to mini ruse or non-competitive football or social football at the age of 30, that's the sort of ages we're talking about, isn't it? Yeah, it is. And it's even at local junior level is just enjoying your football. My son is a point in case that he's not a sap player. He probably isn't of that standard yet, but he enjoys his football. He loves getting out there with his mates. He loves being active. And, and for me as a dad, I'm very proud of him for for just enjoying uh, what he's doing. But that would be what our class is, that fun social football. And as we move up the pyramid, we have challenge. And this is the athlete who takes their sport more seriously and is usually connected to a club. They enjoy competing, training and like the feeling of winning. That's the sports person or the person that I think has the ability to be elite and go to the next level. But sometimes for whatever reason, don't probably get to where they wanted to go, but still are talented in their own right. Elite, we go up the pyramid a little bit more. This is the athlete who has a desire to progress in their sport and have made a regional team, a state representative team, or an academy squad like the Brisbane Roar Academy. They train as part of a squad, take ownership of their own development outside of organised training, and are really committed to either holding that elite status or progressing on to the next level. Yeah, this is the sports person that, you know, realistically is dedicating a great deal of their, their life to their chosen sport or sports. They would be training or playing nearly every day. They would be dedicated to what they're doing and they would have to have a holistic approach in what they're doing to be successful or to try and be as successful as they possibly can be. And then we move to the pointy end of the spear. This is the professional athlete or an athlete that represents their national team. For example, a professional player from Brisbane Raw or overseas, this is the area where a lot of young kids want to be. Yeah, and it's great to be striving to be the top of the pyramid. As we see, as we go up, it gets smaller and smaller. And and that probably is a point that we must make is that the percentage of sports people that make it into an excellence or an elite program is very small. I think in the A-League at the moment, there's 11 teams 20 contracted players, 220 players in the whole of Australia. So I'm sure in our academy program, we probably have 110 junior footballers at the moment that are all looking to aspire to be a Brisbane or footballer one day. So you can you can understand that the percentage that do make it is only small, but I think it's important that we all give ourselves the best possible chance to, to make it to the top. It's also important to note that each part is rewarding in itself and you don't have to be an elite athlete to find value in it. Being involved in sport is great in itself. I I believe it's great for mental health. And I think wherever we end up, we've just got to be knowing that we give ourselves the best shot at going to where we want to be and also enjoying what we're doing, which is as, as a sports person that I was, I loved football and I still love football to this day. And no matter what level of football I still play, I, I love getting out there. We've had our first question and it is from Alex. And he says, how important have your coaches been to your development as a football player? Very good question, Alex. 
I think each coach that I had along the way played an important role. I'm a big believer in every coach that I had. I tried to learn something off them or become a better player because of them. Along the way, I had many excellent coaches. From the start, which was in far north Queensland, Edge Hill, my local club, Steve Davies, he was probably my first most influential coach that gave me that bit of, I guess, developed me as, as a footballer and, and saw something in me, which was good for confidence. I obviously, my first Queensland Academy of Sport coach, Gary Phillips, was also influential in, in having that belief in me and, and I guess harnessing the raw talent that I had. I will never forget my first professional coach, well, when I signed my first professional deal at the Brisbane Strikers, John Cosmina, who probably turned me from a boy into a man. He was very hard on us young players, which at the time I thought was was quite confronting, actually, but made me, when we talk about mental toughness, uh, that was the start of my journey, probably as an 18-year-old, to be honest, and it, it did prepare me well for the years ahead. I then go along the way and I've had Graham Arnold as a national team coach who was excellent in, in getting me prepared for game day. And then obviously here in Australia, Ange Postacoglu I had in Brisbane at the Brisbane Roar and we were so successful together. And he was like a father at the time. You know, he was he was just unbelievable in, in making us bulletproof really. And and we all bought into what he was wanting us to achieve. And they were great, great times. And Look, along the way, I've also had Mike Mulvey, who I won a championship through, who was who was important. John Aloisi, who I who I finished my career with, about you know professional standards, and John as a player was unbelievable, and as a coach, he was very good at at those standards. And to this day, where right now, you know, our head coach is Robbie Fowler, and so I get to experience the player I played with with Robbie at North Queensland Fury and now I get to see him as a manager, and I have learned a lot about how relaxed he is as a man how good he is at man management. And that's probably something all coaches, I believe, can get better at. And, and it's a big part of the dynamic of, of a team sport. You can't paint everyone with the same brush. You can't treat everyone the same. You need to work out how to get the best out of each and every individual so the team succeeds. Very good question, Alex. Shane, you're going to share with us three stories about Brisbane Raw? Yeah, definitely. And and, and I, I wanted to say, look, when I was coming through the system, let's say, there was probably only realistically, a, a, a pathway that you had to take to become into that elite sphere of, of sports person. I'm really encouraged that in today's sporting world, there are many different ways to get to the same end point, which is to be a professional sports person, let's say, if that's what we want to do. And I think it's we have to be all understanding and mindful that if you don't make it at one path, you don't have to give up. There are other pathways that you can take to be successful and, and reach the top. The first example is what we class as the textbook example. And this is a person whose junior development followed the football pathway pretty much textbook. And, and do you want to share with us who that raw player is? You couldn't get a better example than this person. And it's, you know, Matt Mackay, my captain, a great leader, but someone that I would think in a perfect world took the near-perfect pathway. He came through the Queensland Academy of Sport, which was like the NYL or the Youth League program we have now. He then transitioned into the Brisbane Strikers as a young footballer and made his professional debut as a young as a youngster. He obviously then went on to play for the Brisbane Raw in the A-League and very successful at it, captained the club, won championships. Then as a footballer, never stopped trying to improve and was very motivated to do that. And, and then obviously tried his luck overseas. And, and for Matt, went to Scotland, went to Rangers, probably not as successful as he would have hoped, but that didn't stop him and, and pioneered into Asia and in, in South Korea and, uh, and China. And, and, and along the way, obviously made, you know, 59 caps for his country. And, and for a guy, he's only a small little fella, but when you talk about mental strength, hunger, competitiveness. There's not many better than, than Matt McCoy, but did take what you would call or what I would call in my role now the perfect pathway. Okay, the next journey is the stumble, which refers to a player that has progressed through the pathway, but then for one reason or another received a setback and then had to overcome that setback to, I guess, get back on the road to success and move into excellence. Yeah, I, I get to see this guy nearly every day, Dylan Wenzel-Halls, and I'm really proud of him, actually, because he's a great lad. But Dylan was in our system, 
which was our part of our Y League program, our youth league program, didn't progress to earning himself a professional contract the first time. Uh, went back to NPL Queensland land, went back with Western, uh, Western Pride and absolutely dominated. Uh, never stopped working hard. It was really a standout. You know, I think the year before we signed him on a pro deal, I think he had something like 20, 20 odd goals in 10 games. You know, I think for Dylan, never gave up. You know, was in the system, went out of the system, but he wants to, as a player each and every day now, he wants to keep improving. And he wants to keep getting better. And I think for Dylan now, he also is not just happy to be an A-League player. I think his next pathway is to go overseas and, and again, continue to try and play for national teams. He's done that at under-23 level now, but probably play senior national teams. And I'm sure it's his goal to play overseas one day, which I believe if he keeps working hard, he's got the ability to do. How easy would it have been for him to, to after being released from the Brisbane Roar as a youth player, and go into the National Premier League, which is the tier below, to feel a sense of rejection and maybe not recover from that and have a poor season. Yeah, 100%. You know, he, he, could, have, he could have packed it in, let's be honest. He could have said, nah, that's too hard for me. And remember, when he went out of our system, I think going back to Western Pride and no slight to them, but they would have been semi-professional. They would have been training potentially three nights a week. They would have had a game on the weekend from, let's say, March to September. Not full-time professional. So he would have had to be self-motivated. He would have had to be, as you spoke about before, he would have been having to do extra training work, extra finishing practice. He would have had to look after his own diet, his own sleep patterns, his own weekly preparation so that he could be performing on a weekend. He wouldn't have had the support that he probably would have had at the Brisbane Raw, but he didn't He didn't make that as an excuse and he continued on and, he, and he's getting his rewards now. The next player... And you might want to check your notes on this one, but this is the late arrival. There's a theory in football that if you haven't made, or at any sport, that if you haven't been identified by 13 or 14, then you never will. But this is not true. So many young athletes only start growing into their bodies around 15, 16 or 17. Who is an example to you, Shane, of a player that I guess made a representative team in those sort of 15, 16, 17 years? I guess this is my story. I'm very pleased that I get the opportunity to share my story because, like we've mentioned, born and bred in far north Queensland with very supportive parents, started playing football as a five-year-old, was also always reasonably talented. You get to that, I guess, period of a junior football career at 12, let's say, when you start making representative sides. For people on here, they might understand, but being a part of a far north Queensland squad is sometimes quite difficult because when you come south to the Brisbane teams, you tend to struggle because of the gap in, in, in class, let's call it. For myself, at 12, 13, 14, 15, I was not making Queensland teams. I was probably not even making shadow sides for a Queensland select. I was small and as we know as young men, we all develop, develop at different times. But along the way, I didn't give up. I, I, I continued to work hard and, and I'm very thankful that my parents probably made the ultimate sacrifice for me and in uh, 1995 decided to move south, move to southeast Queensland and, and set up base on the Gold Coast. Now, I must give you some information that they chucked in their jobs, they both chucked in their jobs for me. My sister had to relocate school, she was just going into year eight and they did all that for my, for my I guess, my football career. For me, but making most of the opportunity and repaying my family was always in the back of my mind. And um, in 1996, I probably had the most influential, beneficial, best year of my junior career, let's call it, where I really kicked on. I developed physically. My football was was going in the right direction. And obviously by September 96, I'd been offered a, a scholarship at the Queensland Academy of Sport. And remember, at this time, the NPL land and things like that weren't as strong. So the local league was not as, as good as it is now. For me, I was lucky that 96 was probably the most crucial year of me becoming a professional footballer. And I was lucky enough to have, have a coach, as I already said, in Gary Phillips and Mike Mulvey, who, who really moulded me as a footballer, turned me into a left back that I ended up playing the rest of my career in that position, which was which was great. And I guess from there on, it just was all fell into line for me. I, I, I progressed from QAS to QAS 
year after year and then I've eventually made my National Soccer League debut in 1998 as an 18-year-old. So, I mean, getting there was was just the start of my journey. Obviously, I, 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 started, I stayed in the NSL or the old A-League as, as we would call it until I was 23, 24. Progressed then, next challenge was to go overseas and play in Europe and I played in Norway for five, five and a half, six seasons. So to the point where in between that, I, I started to uh, represented my country on a number of occasions. And obviously playing European football is a dream for, for all young footballers. So I guess I, I, I just want to mainly let people know that, you know, if you're not at the best or the top of the tree at 12 or 13 or 14 or 15, it's not a time for alarm or panic. Look, it all evens out over time. And as we've just seen, some footballers or sportsmen will take the road that's simplest. Others will take a more different road and someone like myself takes a unique pathway. But we all get to where we want to go, which is excellence. And that's where at the moment, like I'm saying, we're, we're very young sports people uh, are very blessed uh, that they have more than one way to make it to the top. Matthew Becker has a question. Keep those questions coming. He's asked, how do you feel you developed as a player in Norway? Can I add to that? How did you develop as a person as well? Because going overseas is a significant experience for anyone. The first day I get off a plane, Cairns boy, don't forget, you know, been in Cairns 80% of my life and I fly into Oslo uh, International Airport and it is snowing. There is snow everywhere. My first training session was on artificial grass and it was probably minus five degrees, probably physically the hardest and I was going into pre-season then, probably the hardest pre-season that I've ever done in my life. Double sessions every day, gym programs, et cetera, et cetera, and all in a foreign country, uh, like Stuart has mentioned, you know, unable to speak language, not having family around. I was lucky that I was supported by my, my wife who, who moved over around three months after I, I began, but I was really there by myself. I had one Australian footballer that was in my team, Casey Wehrman, who to this day I'm still thankful for, for guiding me and helping me along the way. Yeah, at the time as a Cairns boy, it's, it's, a, it's an eye-opener. It's an eye-opener to be, in a, in a, like I said, a foreign country. Uh, but as young footballers and all you young, young sports people out there that have the opportunity, we all want to progress to the, to the best possible leagues. And I think as a young Australian at the time, and this was around the 2000s, I wanted to play in the Premier League. That was, was my dream. I knew that I wasn't probably good enough to play in the Premier League, or obviously I wasn't good enough, but that didn't stop me from trying to take a direction where I could get there. And my, my goal was to play in Scandinavia for a season or two, then transfer across to England, either First Division, Championship, even, even uh, League One, and then hopefully one day be good enough to play in one of the top leagues in Europe. Unfortunately, easier said than done, but I had an enjoyable six seasons in Norway. I, I mean, it was a it was an outstanding uh, learning experience for me. And it was also, I don't believe I would have represented my country if I hadn't made that made that move to play in Scandinavia in, in Europe. And look, I can't undersell, you know, Norwegian football, very physically de- demanding, very tough, very skillful. But also I got opportunities to play against Newcastle United at St. James's Park in the what it used to be called the Intertoto Cup. And so, you know, there was there was along the way, there was some some outstanding opportunities and 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 challenges you know to play Copenhagen FC in in, in Copenhagen who are champion league perennial performers so there was there were some outstanding moments and 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 as a person it made me grow up a, a lot quicker than probably what I what I was um what I was go, going to do so um great question Campbell Tanner has also asked the question uh, did you get homesick the truth of the matter is uh, for everyone out there I landed on the ground and I had an outstanding pre-season, absolutely outstanding. And by the start of the season, which was around March, April, I think of, of probably 2004, I was the starting left back at Lillestrom Football Club, which was a dream. So I was overseas, I was earning my spot. What happened throughout that first three or four months, my form did. And I probably hadn't experienced competition or a squad at with so much strength here in Australia, I was playing week in, week out. So I was very happy myself. And as we know, as sports people or as footballers, we always want to play. 
Unfortunately, by the summer of 2004, I'd lost my position and I was then having to go back and play second division, basically reserve football, which wasn't easy, which wasn't easy. So you just had a, I'd had the highs of making debuts and everything going well to the now, to the challenges, to the first challenge. And that was trying to win my spot back. It got even worse and I shouldn't say worse, but by, by the September of that year, I still was on the bench basically and by then, and this is when us Australians do definitely get homesick, but in Europe by September and October, it starts to get drizzly, rainy, cold again. And that were the times that I was really missing Brisbane, really missing home, really missing my family because I would went over there to play football. I would went over there to play week in, week out, which I wasn't doing. And you know what? It was a reflection on me as a footballer because I wasn't ready. I wasn't ready to, pl- to play week in, week out. In, in all honesty, it actually took me 18 months, 18 months in, in, in my current club, Lillestrom, to, to, to win or to earn a starting spot and play in week in, week out. It actually took me till probably midway through my second season in Norway before I regained my starting spot. But from then on, I was, I was playing week in, week out. I was probably playing some of the best football that I'd ever played. And as a person, it, it had really strengthened me. It strengthened my... Uh, mental ability, like we talk about, that mental toughness that I had to get through. And I was loving what I was doing. I was a professional footballer on weekends, long weekends, and this is something around the life experience. Me and my wife, we could fly across to Paris. Um, my sister was in London. I'd go across and watch Fulham play at Craven Cottage or Crystal Palace play or our Premier League game. It was, it was, it was outstanding. But as we see now in, in, in a lot of professional sport or specifically in football, Australians that are going to Europe, it's not easy. People don't understand how difficult it is. And, and I have a, a, a true understanding when players do return after 18 months of being in Europe and people say, well, why didn't you stick it out? Very much easier said than done, guys. When they haven't been successful, it, it is difficult, that's for sure. There are some common threads that link players who achieve excellence. Uh, what they do makes them stand out from others with potentially the same skill set but not necessarily the same mindset. What are some of the similarities between those three players? We've just um, spoken about myself, about non-selection. We've spoken about Dylan, about not earning a professional contract, um, let's say the first time around. We've probably talked about Matt Mackay not being as successful as he would have wanted to be at Rangers, a massive football club, of course. You know, so we all have have setbacks along the way, whether whether those setbacks begin at 13, like we're saying, non-selection of not making a, a Queensland state team or not making at 15s a, a Joey's national side or, or or not even being selected in the starting 11 for a club side. So we, we all have those uh, setbacks along the way. It is important that you always refocus. It's important that you learn from those moments. And it's important that you continue to try and work hard and improve so that you can bounce back bigger and better. For myself, which we haven't probably spoken about yet in terms of setback, after finishing in Europe, I'd come back to the North Queensland Fury. Being a Cairns boy, I wanted to sign for my local club, let's call it, or the local club in my area. Seven games in, uh, I, I ruptured my cruciate ligament in my left knee. Now, the timing of that could not have been worse because in September 2009, I played my third ever game for the Australian national team against Korea in Korea. The next summer was going to be the 2010 World Cup. You couldn't get a worse time for me as a footballer to have a setback. I guess it's some of the toughest times that that I had to go through. Again, that refocusing was exactly what my goal was. And to this day, I say that when I come back from my ACL, my knee was bigger and better and stronger than it ever had been. But what it was, was me being diligent and me being professional and me being doing everything to the best of my ability and then some. You know, if I had to do three sets of 10 uh, leg press on my left knee, I'd do three sets of 12 and I'd do three sets of 12 on my right. You know, if I had to do 90 minutes on the bike, I'd do 95 minutes on the bike and then I'd do a 15-minute warm down. I was always making sure that I was doing, going above and beyond what I had to do uh, because in the belief that when I did come back, I, I didn't want to, to drift off into the sunset. I wanted to, to, to be even more successful. And thankfully, 
in 2010, uh, a guy by the name of Ange Postacoglu was rebuilding, let's call it, the Brisbane Royal Football Club and I was part of his plans and I guess as we've already mentioned, the rest is history really. You were certainly prepared for your games but also in training. Yeah, and Stu, I want to come back to that pyramid where we had the elite, the excellence, fun pyramid and I've actually done it where my pyramid as a sports person preparing well is this. The foundation is the key, as we know. The foundation of every, any building of any footballer is the key. So I, I break it down into four key areas. Diet, sleep patterns, training load, and preparation. These are the four things. If you can get right, gives you an outstanding foundation. Now, the, the key with these four things, we are in control of these four things. What we eat, how long we sleep for at night, how prepared we are for training, how much training we do or how hard we work at training, that's all within each and every one of us. We have the ability to dictate these key terms. And then once we get this foundation right, then we can start look at performing at a consistent high level. We can start looking at mental toughness and being able to perform under pressure And then, of course, once we get all these decision-making like we've spoken about, we haven't touched on as much, but once we get our decision-making process correct, we then can be elite. We can be elite and we can be at the top of that pyramid. But remember, the foundation is something that we all have the ability to guide ourselves and to be a destiny of our own future. And then the next area you talk about is your ability to learn as a player. Again, I believe this is something that we all continually develop over our careers. It's not something we are instinctively born with, but it's something we can improve on over time. And I guess it's, it's, it's when we're listening to coaches, when we're able to take criticism on board, even if we don't agree with, what, what, with potentially what's being said. The ability to reflect on our performances and see what we did well and see what we didn't do so well. Now, also being able to move on from a bad day at the office. We all have bad days at the office and we will continue to have bad days at the office. But if we dwell on these too long, it can be quite simply counterproductive. And all three of the players here, Matt McKay, an outstanding professional. And I mean, everything he did, was at a high standard. Any setback that he would have had, he was able to deal with that and move on quickly. Someone like Dylan obviously has to overcome adversity, but understand that when he gets another opportunity, he learns from his previous opportunity in a program and knows what he has to do better this time to obviously succeed. And even that little things like having a little bit more, and I hope it doesn't offend anyone, but a little bit more mongrel, a little bit more want to, to, to be the best, you know, and, and that's probably what Dylan now has. Um, and, and I guess myself was, was more about I was never the most talented footballer and I, to my day I was never going to be the most talented footballer, but what I was going to be good at was being able to make the most of the ability I had the making the most of all those things that I had control of, like I just spoke to you about diet, sleep, preparation, training. It was probably detriment to me in the later years of my career. I didn't know when to maybe pull it back a bit and go at 80 or 90% into a, instead of 100% all the time. And that cost me some soft tissue injuries, hamstring injuries, calf problems, because I wanted to go as hard as I could for as long as I could, whether that was a training or whether that was in a game. And, and, and sometimes I guess I could have learned a little bit more about my body. But again, I, I wouldn't change it if I had it over. You certainly believe that good decision making is a key part of a, of a good athlete. Yeah, it's not key. It's crucial. You know, if I can say it at any level of sport, being able to make good decisions under stressful situations, under fatigue. I think as young footballers, we see a match and let's say a football match and it gets a bit scrappy sometimes at 60 or 70th minute. Your passing accuracy might be a little bit off or your performance may dip a bit and that's quite simply that we're fatigued up here 
and it does affect our decision making good decisions you know and and that's what i think coaches are always saying being able to make good decisions and sports people or footballers that are able to make good decisions are normally ones that are that are performing at a high level and and normally the ones that are being successful but you have to be able to give yourself that freedom to fail you have to take responsibility for the good decisions and the bad decisions and look let's be honest guys i try to say me as a as a sports person i made plenty of mistakes i made plenty of mistakes about my routine as a young footballer not getting it right. I probably learned more about my preparation as I got older. I learned more about mental toughness that I required or even uh, to the point where I probably played the game in my mind before the game had even started, which that anxiety and pressure builds builds up so much that you don't perform probably as well as you'd hope. It's always something that you need to evaluate. It's always something that you need to try and work on. And it's always something that you need to try and improve on. It's one of the toughest skills in professional sport. And I say this, whether you're a a rugby league player, whether you're a golfer, whether you're playing tennis, whether you're a footballer, whether you're track and field, it is relative to every sport. In order to make good decisions, you have to at least make a number of bad decisions. And that freedom to fail is really important, isn't it? It's not even a freedom to fail. It's, It's more so about being willing to try. It's nothing worse than seeing a footballer specifically that isn't willing to try and play that killer pass sometimes because of the fear of giving the ball away. But if you're working within your structure and you're working within your team philosophy, trying to play that through ball, whether it comes off or doesn't come off, I would rather see someone try and do that than playing the safe option of going back to your goalkeeper, let's say. That is just an example of sometimes how frustrating it can be for a coach to probably have a player that is brave. It's bravery. It is bravery sometimes to be able to, because you know what? You might have given the, the last three balls away. You go on, you get the ball again on the fourth time. Hopefully you want the ball still. And you see that strikers on, in on goal, if you play that pass. Now, what do you do? Do you try and play it? Maybe maybe it goes over the byline and it goes out for a goal kick. Okay, but I'd rather see someone try it on that fourth time, that's for sure. The common theme, and people talk about the secret of success, and it's not really a secret, is hard work, hard work, hard work. But it seems to be the one that most people struggle with. Yeah, isn't it interesting that I guess, you know, everyone on this is called today, I'm sure, has, has heard more than me say, look, look, let's be honest. If you want to be elite, if you want to be successful and you're not willing to work hard, then you might as well forget it now, unfortunately. That's as honest as I can be. Think of it like I spoke before. A small percentage will make it to the top, to the point where my youth team, which was from, again, I started in 96 and I probably finished in about 98. I think there was potentially three of us that transitioned into professional contract with the Brisbane Strikers. Now, during that time, there would have been between 40 and 50 minimum footballers that come through that system that all wanted to be elite, but for whatever reason, didn't make it. If you're not willing or you're not wanting to work as hard as your body can possibly push and to the point where you nearly need to be a bit selfish here and you need to, nearly need to be working harder, in my opinion, than every other competitor, every other person you come up against. In all honesty, sometimes every other teammate. It is a ruthless world and I guess that's probably being a little bit too honest with everyone, but professional sport, it gives people so much but it also, there is an understanding there that it is not easy to get to the top. And, and that's why, because for those people that do make it, they have worked really hard along the way. We talk about working hard at training at the game, but there's more than that, isn't it? When we talk about extras, for example, when your coach asks you to look into a certain type of or philosophy within your sport, or your coach asks you to fill out a eating plan, or your coach asks you to do something that doesn't seem like part of your sport but it's essential in your growth and you don't do it then that's failing in this aspect isn't it it's failing in hard work because it's not just on the pitch and it's not just the training yeah you're probably letting yourself down in in all honesty if the little one percenters as we talk about if the little one percenters are the things that are letting you down you know if your eating habits if your sleep patterns if your training standards are not as good as they probably can be that's probably the disappointment but i'll just digress a little bit here but to the point where 
my routine before a game got to the point where I was so meticulous in what I was doing probably two or three days out from a game. There was really no flexibility in it. I was eating similar foods. I was sleeping as much as I could, to be honest, where I was going to bed at 8.30 at night, to be honest, and I was sleeping through the, you know, we had early training sessions, but I was probably, you know, asleep until 6.30 in the morning. On game day, I used to go to bed at probably 9 p.m. the night before, and I'd nearly sleep until 9 a.m. in the morning. I would then have my game day routine of breakfast, same breakfast pretty much always, same lunch pretty much always, and you'll love this. I then used to have an afternoon sleep as well. You know, I used to try and have an hour in the afternoon before my pre-match meal and then I was off to the stadium. And, and that's how, I guess, meticulous that I'd broken down my preparation because I knew that when I got out onto Suncorp Stadium on a Saturday night, I felt bulletproof nearly. I felt that I'd given myself the best possible opportunity to, to perform at the highest possible standard now sometimes i would do all that and i'd have a stinker or the 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 winger would get the better of me that day so that's always going to happen but i had a belief in what i was doing was correct for me and it's for me you know because everyone will be different of how they prepare but when when i got the formula right or what i thought was a formula i would just replicate over and over again i have got a question and this question was actually written by none other than mr martin doherty who I believe you know, and he's he's a bit of a legend in football. He says, Shane, you lived in the country, Cairns, as a child, and you moved to Brisbane to pursue your dream to become a professional football player. Given the same scenario, would you do it again? And what advice would you give to a country player and their family thinking on doing the same thing right now? And this actually reflects a, a question that just came through from Griffin Coleman. And he says, and perhaps you can answer these questions together, would it be beneficial to move closer to the big cities to be noticed as a player? Griffin and, and Martin's questions are, are, are very good questions, actually, and I guess everyone has to answer them for themselves. First part of it, given the scenario, would I do it again? Of course I would. Uh, of course I would. I can't underestimate or understate the sacrifice that my family did give for me. That sometimes is not something that every family can do. It may not be possible for both parents to give up or a parent to give up their their job and support a sports person in their dream of becoming a professional. Do I believe that it is beneficial in coming to the big smoke or, or, or further south? You need to be where you're going to be challenged. That's my belief. Wherever that is, that's where you need to be probably or Potentially in the southeast Queensland corridor, there can be, I guess, a little bit more opportunity. The standard of competition can be a little bit higher. A talented sports person will make it uh, one way or the other. And as we've spoken about, during different we can take different pathways to get to where we need to be. And and that isn't necessarily having to to move family into the southeast corridor to become a professional sports person because I do know. And I must admit, I'll be honest with this, I do know families that have moved down for sport and haven't made it to the top. So for every story, I guess, like myself, who was fortunate enough to make it, there probably is a story of someone that did the same but didn't make it. Sport is a wonderful thing. It gives us so much joy, but there can also be so much disappointment that comes with it. But don't forget now, in terms of families having to relocate to, let's say, the Southeast Corridor, not necessarily anymore. There can be boarding schools. School programs can support now. Young generation teens, let's call you, are also probably able to move away from home at a, a younger age and maybe even be with a host family, let's say. I'm, I'm sure a lot of footballers will know, or if you don't know, the stories of someone like Tim Cale, Lucas Neal, that all moved or all had to go to the UK as 15, 16, 14, 15, 16 year olds for their dream of becoming a professional sports person. Fair play to them because I don't know about yourself, but me as a 14 or a 15 year old, I'd be lucky to be able to move out of my state, let alone uh, move out of a country and go to a foreign place to to take up a dream. They're not easy decisions, but I guess everyone has to assess what's possible and what's beneficial for them. 
You mentioned the 50 players that potentially the strikers that didn't make it. And this is, I guess, dedicated to those people who nearly made it. And there's a number of reasons. I mean, injury can be one of them. But I guess what we're talking about is the nearly made it, the person who was there but couldn't quite make it because of their their mindset. And you you didn't select a player for this, did you? And, and there's obviously good reasons why. It's me as a, in my current role as football director, and it was even me as, as a footballer, there is nothing more frustrating than seeing someone or a young sports person who has ability, they have speed, they have physical capacity, they have all the traits, let's call it, to be successful or be the best, but they don't have that work ethic. They don't have that instinctive hard work ability that you require. And, and you know what it, it does show, and, and I'll be honest with this again, in my era or in my age group, the kids that were the best at 12 were not the best at 16. Unfortunately, the kids at 12 that were always the best didn't have to work as hard as some of us to get to the top. And so they become a little bit too relaxed, a little bit too comfortable, to be honest. And unfortunately, as young men, we all develop at different rates, but we all even out at some time. And that is where, in the end, it all evens out at some stage, and that's probably in the years of 16, 17, 18, let's be honest. And that's where I believe you'll reap the benefits of all the hard work you've probably put in over the years. Stuart, I will put someone out there, and, and he, he's, he's, a, he's an excellent footballer, and he plays for Sydney FC at the moment, and it's Luke Bratton. And he was a teammate of mine when I first got to Brisbane in 2010. And at the time, he could have been one to be that, that, that was in the category of nearly made it. Unfortunately for Luke, he had issues with his health, which was setting him back. He didn't have any issues with his ability. He was like he is, if you know him now, he's one of the best passers in the A-League and he's one of the best footballers in the A-League now. But at the time in 2010, he was behind someone like Eric Pardalou, Massimo Madoka, Matt Mackay senior pros that were outstanding in what they were doing. And for Luke, I think there was maybe a time period there between 2010 and 2013 where it could have went either way for him. Thankfully, he pushed through. I think he was part of a championship winning side in the third one for us. And then the rest is history for him now because he's gone on and played, you know, he went and signed for Manchester City. I think he was loaned out to, to Bolton. He's also been at Melbourne City and you know, he's one of the key key players, as I said, for, for Sydney FC at the moment. So it could have been a nearly made it moment for someone like Luke. But I love today that we've got 44 people here that have taken the time to take an hour out of their day to basically listen to me and a little bit Stuart waffle on about our, or my beliefs, basically. Now, if you're willing to cut corners, then you might as well forget it now. I'm not saying, and, and also I should come back to this as well, that there is a time and a place for relaxation and to freshen your mind and your body. So don't think that I'm saying to each and every one of you that you have to train five days a week, 52 weeks of the year. Don't think that at all for, for a second. But if you're not willing to when you're in Preparation, pre-season, season, if you're willing to cut corners, then I think it, personally um, you're doing yourself a disservice, but you're also you're not going to get the best out of yourself. And, and, and that's, the, that's the truth. I will share a little bit more information about me as a, as a footballer. When I came back to the A-League, when I come back from my ACL, when I went to Brisbane, I was 30. So as a footballer, ancient, basically, over the hill many times, some journalists would call me. But what I did know is that we used to get a five-week holiday period and I would religiously, and every year, I'd take 10 to 12 days off. I would. I'd, I'd take my family to Fiji. I'd go to Hawaii. I'd go somewhere nice and warm and I'd do nothing for 10 to 12 days. I would eat all the food I love, hot chips, icy drinks, you name it. I, I, would, I would sit on the beach loving life. But what I would do from day 13 until first day of pre-season, I would do my own program. I would go and run. I would go and be active. 
I would make sure that on the day, first day of pre-season when I came back in, that the coach saw me and saw how good shape I was in to put me top of the queue in terms of him knowing that he could, one, rely on me, and two, that I was motivated to be successful again. And I probably believe that that's why I was able to play until I was 36 and a half years old, which is, you know, like a dinosaur in football world these days. They're just some of the, the little tips or, or, or the trade. But don't think that guys as uh, sports people and as young people, you shouldn't be enjoying life and you shouldn't be having a mental and physical break when you're told to. We talk about freedom to fail before. You should be willing to fail, but you need to be able to learn from it, I guess. You know what? It's it's so easy to say. It's so easy to talk about. Dealing with pressure, you know, we just say, oh, you just got to deal with pressure. But it's not like school where you get taught how to do it. You know, you really have to learn it for yourself. You, you really have to figure out how you will deal with failing under pressure. Like we've spoken about, you will have to, I guess, figure out how you're going to bounce back. You will, each and every one of you, will have to deal about how you are going to forget about it quickly and move on. You know, easier said than done. There's a lot of people that may want to talk to someone about it. There's a lot lot that just deal with it themselves. There will be some that will rely on their coach, um, will rely on a mentor. There's various different ways. But you have to understand that along the way, there will be hurdles there will be ups and downs. It's it's not like no one's going to go like up, up, up and, you know, keep going up. It's not how it goes. You would talk to uh, whether it's Wayne Rooney, Cristiano Ronaldo, Lionel Messi, LeBron James, Michael Jordan, Greg Norman, Tiger Wood. They would have all had their ups and downs. They would have all failed under pressure at some stage, but they would have been able to work through it and come out on the other side uh, bigger and better. And that's what you need to focus on. It's it's not failing under pressure that you need to dwell on. It's it's coming out of it and being better for it. You want to give us a recap on what we've uh, talked about today? My key recap, guys, and this is when I've been speaking to Stuart, is about pathway. My pathway was different to a lot of other pathways we would expect a footballer to take. Sometimes my pathway is, is more difficult as well and a bit more sacrifice in that my family had to move. But I just wanted to reiterate that the new generation we are in with professional sport, there is more than one way to make it now. If, if you fight or if you don't make it one way, that you can turn left or right and you can still make it to the top. So don't, don't give up there. I'm a big believer, big believer only because of my, myself as point in case of not being the most naturally gifted athlete that ever, ever played a game, that you need to continually work hard. You need to continually try and be the best you can be. And that's why I spoke about that pyramid about getting a good base. It's very easy, and I see this as my, uh, being a father right now, that for my daughter to stay on her phone until 10.30 at night, it's not great, guys, when... If you're going to school, and I know a lot of you would have an early start to get to school when it goes back to school, you know, it's not good to be able to, to be going to bed at 10.30 at night and having to wake up at 6.30 in the morning. It's, it's not great, you know. That's what I'm saying. We have to be disciplined and we have to make sacrifices about those key areas, about our diet, about our sleep patterns, about our preparation, about our training. We, we have to get those. If we can get those foundations right, we give ourselves the best chance to succeed. That pretty much sums it up and I guess we are in for some fast questions. Do you need to know someone to make it or is your skill and hard work enough? And that's from Declan Warns. Yeah, I think Declan, I don't think you need to know someone to, to make it. I think you need to make the most of opportunities that come your way. You know, I mean, if you're, if you're at a, a, a identification series, let's be honest, you have a good good tournament and, and in the eyes of coaches, you might be elevated in their thought process. So I think it's a matter of making the most of the opportunities that come along, you know, and, and taking taking those opportunities because even in my career there were there were key moments for me that come along and, and I probably did make the most of those opportunities. Did you go out partying or doing anything non-productive at any time? I'm going to need more than 30 seconds but look and, and this is truth hand on heart this is the truth like when I moved to southeast Queensland in 96 I was in year 11 and as we know as year 11 and 12 students every Friday night and Saturday night there's something happening now my Queensland Academy of Sport game was either a Saturday or 
potentially Saturday or Sunday. So the party was on Friday nights. There were times, and, and again, when I guess girlfriends come along and things like that, and they're not influencing you, but they're asking you to come to a party on a Friday night. And again, when we come back to our preparation, if I'm not willing to sacrifice in those key moments, I probably uh, wouldn't have succeeded. But, I, and I'll be brutally honest with all of you, there is a moment where you go, well, do I just want to be a normal teenager? And, and that's the truth of the matter. And you know what? I went to schoolies. I did all those things that any teenager should do. And I did party along the way. 100% of course I did. I was lucky enough to be responsible enough that I could do it at the right time when it didn't affect my career. Martin, he wants to know, why aren't you moving into coaching? And, and Martin would know this and, and every coach knows this, you either have it or you don't have it when it comes to your passion for coaching. And a long time ago, I saw that that was not for me. And, and you know what? I have an appreciation after working so closely with a couple of coaches that I think their life is really difficult. They are so passionate about what they're doing and they love what they do. But for me, uh, I actually believe it was probably a worse job than being a player, to be honest, at times. So, um, yeah, thank you, Martin, but uh, definitely not for me. Move on to what was your dream position? Because you did start as a striker. Yeah, and isn't that a good... Yeah, we spoke about this the other night, didn't we, Stuart? And, um, look, I started as a striker, and I'm honest with that. I, I, was a, I was a striker as a young footballer. I was probably a striker until I was about 14 years or 13 or 14 years of age. I then got moved back as a central midfielder. Uh, which I enjoyed. I enjoyed because uh, at the time in my early teens, I was a I was a cross country runner and I liked my um, athletics, and so my cardio capacity was quite was quite high. So I could get up and down the field. So central midfield really did suit me. That's probably where I had the best tournament of my career as a 16 year old when I got identified for the Queensland Academy of Sport was actually as a central midfielder. But as I got into competition for that position, I probably wasn't skillful enough. If I'm honest, I wasn't a, a good enough passer. You couldn't just you know you couldn't just I guess, get away with just being a good runner. So I got moved out to the left. I am a left footer. I'm blessed that I was a left footer. I, I don't think, as I said, if some people, I'm honest, I wouldn't have probably made it if I was a right footer, to be honest with you, because I don't think I was talented enough. I was a left footer. I got moved out onto the left wing back role. I got moved back to a left back position and, that, and that's what suited me. And I'm thankful for the coaches that saw that in me. Shane, thank you so much for giving your time today. It's been awesome. Thanks, Stuart, and well done to yourself for making this possible in these difficult times. So um, you're doing a great job, mate, and it was my pleasure.